Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Danger on Delmarva. I'll also be doing this as a cross-posted episode to my other podcast, Mystifyingly Missing, True Crime and Thought-Provoking Events. My name is Rhonda Jefferson, and I'll be your host as we explore the dark and winding roads that lead around the Delmarva Peninsula. If you're not familiar with Delmarva, it's an area that encompasses all of Delaware, Maryland to the east of the Chesapeake Bay Bridge, and Virginia to the north of the Chesapeake Bay Bridge Tunnel. Before we get started too much into the episode, I just want to say a thank you for a couple of things. One is for those that reached out to me after my brother's death, um, just to show support, and it really you know, meant a lot to hear from you. I know others... Um, and some did also donate to his funeral expenses. So that helped take a heavy weight that you know, was weighing on the entire family. It helped alleviate that. And though you may see it or hear about it in the previous episode, the GoFundMe has been taken down for that. And also thank you for your patience in the longer than usual time in between episodes. Um, just when I was about ready to start recording again, the whole family came down with COVID. So um, just to varying degrees, so some were a little worse than others. I still have a little bit of a difference in my voice, and I can hear it at least profoundly in wearing the headsets, but I don't think it comes across as much Um you know, when listening back, but at least having the headset on, I can really hear that there is a difference. Also, I have looked into a couple of stories. I got my first Freedom of Information Act denial um, a couple weeks ago. And unfortunately, without information from that, it's going to be a really short episode based on what one reporter was able to obtain at the time when um, the incident happened, and that was only through interviews from people who were involved. So looking at that um, story in itself, um, once I do go ahead and produce that, we'll have to keep in mind that everything is from the perspective of those that were involved. So, you know, as far as 100% reliability, I'm sure to the person giving the witness statement, it is 100% correct because that's the way they remember it, but they may have missed something or just given different perspectives may have seen it in a different manner. So I'll have that out in a couple of weeks because what I do want to do is try to make a few shorter episodes instead of the longer ones that give a lot of background to, um, you know, get these stories that maybe people don't know as much about out there. Um, I'll have another Freedom of Information Act request that I'll be putting in for a story that, without any more information, will literally be five minutes long. Um, so, fingers crossed that we can at least get a follow-up on that one. But both cases, I think, are important for not only the stories of those that were the victims, but also in accepting the responsibility that comes along when things don't go the way that they should and when they could have been prevented. And uh, before I forget, um, as far as updates about the investigation into my brother's accident, we've been told that it can take up to six to nine months. So that's potentially how long it will take for us to hear what charges, if any, will be um, you know, given to the other driver based on everything that I've heard from statements. It was 100% definitely not my brother's fault as he was sitting there waiting for a school bus that had its lights on and the arm extended. But I, I also understand that I want to make sure everything is done properly and um, you know, every avenue is explored just so, you know, when it does go to trial, if it gets to that point, um, 
I'm thinking probably just my thought, um, probably a plea deal, but you want to make sure that everything is correct when you get to that point. And also it compared to the day that it happened, um, you know, that day, as you can imagine, there were so many different emotions, um, still have them, you know, going through my mind and just quite a bit, but it was a 19 year old who hit him. You know, I don't know anything else beyond that point that he was 19, but I don't think overall that he was driving in a continually reckless manner. You know, so I, you know, I haven't heard anything about weaving through the roads and, you know, running stop signs or anything like that. Um, but I, I don't think he set out to do anything malicious. Of course, I don't think that was, you know, in his mind as he started his day and started his drive. So he does have to live with it for the rest of his life. And, you know, if he is remorseful, you know, that will be a punishment punishment in and of itself. Um, not saying that there shouldn't be also other legal repercussions because, you know, we, we want to be sure that the roads are safe and there needs to be some type of punishment, but I am kind of, you know, back and forth on exactly how I'm feeling about those punishments and, you know, understanding it was not malicious and, you know, driving in whatever manner he was driving was not something he intended. It wasn't um, an intended outcome, of course. So with that being said, I'll give one of my regular disclaimers about the types of cases that I cover. And this will be the second part of the Christine Shetty case, which happened in Maryland. But the cases and incidents that I do cover usually involve mention of death or injury. So I want to make sure everybody is aware of that before they proceed with um, listening to the episode. All of the information or links that I used as part of resources will be in the description of the episode. If you do want to support the episode, um, I'm going to, um, at least for the next couple episodes, not post the buy me a coffee or um, go, sorry, PayPal page. Um, because like I said, I do know some did support towards my brother's expenses. So, um, but if you do want to support it in other ways, share the um, podcast, um, leave a review on Apple, because I think that's the one that helps with the algorithm. Um, just so others find out about and can listen to the podcast and decide if it's something they want to continue listening to. So... I am going to give a brief recap of Christine's case to this point. Christine was a young mother of two who, at a very young age, had lost the love of her life. Um, he had lost a fight with cancer, and you know that was really a major turning point in her life. She did in- eventually start seeing someone named Mitch, whose relationship with her was very abusive. Um, So he did things that we see in other cases, such as isolating Christine. But eventually, Christine realized that she needed to get away from him, and she moved back in with her mother. Now, if anybody has experienced moving back in with their parents after they've um, graduated or been out on their own for a while. It can be um, a little jarring to say the least. I have been in that situation when I moved um, from one part of the state to another. And it was just for a very short period of time until we got the house ready. We were renting, Um, but it, it can sometimes cause two adults to butt heads and that happened, you know, just sometimes with Lynn, or Lynn, who was Christine's mother, and Christine. And one day, Christine took herself and her two little boys and left. Christine moved in with her friend Tia. And once we know more about what happened to Christine, that will seem 
like a very false statement to say the least, but Christine moved in with them with her children. And after about two weeks, Lynn did receive a call from Clarence or Junior Jackson. That was Tia's boyfriend. Um, And also Justin, who I've seen reported as both um, Clarence's cousin and as Tia's cousin, but he was living there as well. But Lynn was told that her daughter was missing. And this is approximately where I left off, so I am going to emphasize some information from here. The trio did report the disappearance very quickly. They did let the police know, so there was a good timeline as to when she may have gone missing. But the biggest question here was, what about the children? The children were left, and though not explicitly stated in anything that I read, it did sound like they went back to live with Lynn. Tia, um, in her reaction to the police, she did seem to be acting like any other concerned friend. And her statement was that she had been gone from the home for a while, and when she came back, The kids were there, but Christine wasn't. And even Tia was vocal in saying that she did not believe that Christine would leave without the children. The trio then did go out and look for Christine, but, you know, they they couldn't find her. And so that's when they turned to the police. They lived on a farmhouse or in a farmhouse and the grounds were, you know, um, they were still pretty clean or clear of anything that looked like there had been a fight. So there was nothing really standing out to the police to say that there had been a fight there. But Tia did give them a letter, which could be described as a goodbye letter. But then the question would be goodbye to who? You know, did she move back in with her mother? But if she did, why didn't she take her kids? The same thing if she moved in with someone else. She was described as not leaving the kids alone, so why would she leave them there? These were the main questions initially. Other factors that kind of fed into what the police would believe was the fact that there was no means for Christine to leave on her own. She didn't have a car, and public transit was not really a big thing. I mean, yes, there was some public, um, you know, transit as far as buses go, but it wouldn't be something that Christine could just say on a whim that she wanted to go somewhere and then just go and a bus would be by in, you know, a few minutes or even just a half an hour Um, from where they were. That just wouldn't be the case. What Tia, Clarence, and Justin were able to provide also was the name of Christine's former boyfriend, and that was Mitch. Now, Mitch admitted that their relationship was not the best. He he knew that anybody who looked at their relationship, that he would probably be the first one that people would think of. However, he did hope that they were working towards a reconciliation, More importantly, though, he had an airtight alibi as to the time frame as to when Christine would have gone missing. And because Tia, Clarence, and Justin had a good time frame for when that would have been, Mitch was easily able to show proof that he had been at work. So there was absolutely no question that He had an alibi. The police, though, got this feeling that he was holding something back. And so eventually he did admit to them that he had found um, Christine's journal, but he was kind of afraid of what the police may think of it. What they found in there were the phone numbers to three different adoption agencies. This made the police look at the situation in a completely different manner. And depending on everybody's different perspective, there could be different feelings about 
what Christine was potentially thinking about doing. Now, Tia said that Christine was a loving and doting mother, and most people could not see her you know, thinking of giving up the children for adoption. This made the police look at it as this was a woman who was trying to get rid of her kids and wanted to start over in another place completely anew. Now, to kind of interject my thoughts on this, I have known people who have both adopted children and who have given up children for adoption. And I believe in every case where someone gave up the children, they were doing so for the love and well-being of those children. They thought about potentially what circumstances they would be living in, Like in one case, she had lost the support of her partner. So, you know, she felt that it was more important that the child have a steady life, um, one that could provide, you know, the basics that would be needed, as well as, you know, the support that the child would need as someone who was single, who didn't have a steady full-time job. She thought that it was better for the baby to live with a family that were a little bit older. They had established careers. Um, The mother could take time off at the beginning, um, you know, for maternity leave. And after reviewing all of that, she felt that was the best situation for her child. It wasn't easy. I know she still thinks about her. I've also heard people be very vitriolic about the prospect of adoption that if someone gives up a baby for adoption, that they're a horrible person, which is something that I can't quite wrap my mind around because it really is, in my opinion, a gift of love as long as it's given in you know the right circumstances that they're not being given up just because they know they're about to lose parental rights or that they don't want the child. When it, a child is given up because the parent wants a better life for them, It really is done out of love. And I don't see how some people can look at that in a manner that is negative in any way, because not only is it providing a better life for the child, it's giving to other parents the opportunity to love and nurture that child. But being skeptic and looking at it from the police's viewpoint, I can understand why they would look at it as she was trying to find someone to take the children. I don't agree with it, but I can see it. And that's probably more in line to cases that they work with. So they begin to look at this as a case of child abandonment. And she was actually charged. Lynn, Christine's mother, was, of course, angry at this. Um, She was yelling at people who worked at the front desk of the police station who probably had nothing to do with the investigation at all or even knew of some of the intricacies of it. But, you know, they were going through the evidence that they had at that point. And because of those three phone numbers in that journal, they started to look at it as... um, as an abandonment and not that something nefarious um, was going on at the time. Now, as far as the journal goes, any thoughts or ideas that maybe Christine had not written those numbers in there, um, you know, was disproven. It was in Christine's own handwriting, but she also could have just been trying to get all the information that she could possibly need if she was actually considering giving up the kids for adoption. Because we have to look at the situation and realize Mitch was not the most steady person. He wasn't reliable um, in some ways and in ways that he even admitted their relationship was not good. It was turbulent and no child should be living in a situation like that. So we can see why Christine might have been looking at all options to make sure that her children were safe. But without any type of crime scene, 
without signs of any violence or things being disheveled at the home, the police continued to look down the path that she had started to a new life somewhere. Looking at it through this point, even if, let's just say, I'm taking everything that the police say in stride, and even if, say, I agree with them, how did she leave? She didn't have a car. And, you know, people can still travel by bus or by train, but it doesn't really leave a lot of options. And I'm just questioning here, who would have given her a ride? Was it Tia, maybe? Was Tia maybe the one who took her somewhere to go to the bus station and now they're trying to cover to even make it more believable? Did maybe she not tell the men who lived at the home? I mean, those would be some kind of thoughts without knowing the outcome of what might have happened. It's not mentioned in anything that I could find that the police maybe talked to Tia specifically about that, but that doesn't necessarily mean that didn't happen, just that it wasn't reported publicly. But Lynn did continue to dig, and she would make phone calls and talk to people. She would go on the news, and she did everything she could could to try to keep a promise that she had given years before. She never wanted to let her daughter down. And Lynn did have an advantage from the police, though. Um, Lynn could do some things that the police couldn't do. You know, the police sometimes can't do things without running the risk of evidence not being allowed if they do whatever, you know, the certain um, act would be. You know, say if it's bordering on illegal and legal, the police may not be able to do it and have that evidence admitted into testimony, whereas an independent citizen can. So Lynn decided to go back to the farmhouse and look for Christine on her own. She was prepared and understood that if there was a possibility that Christine had come to foul play, that she could find her daughter at the farmhouse in a way that no parent should ever find their child. But she knew of these possibilities, but she also knew she had to find her daughter. She would spend there or spend hours and hours of time there and even became friends with one of Tia's neighbors. After two years, there was still no new information about where Christine could have gone. Her bank accounts had not been touched and no one had heard from her. So even if she did want to go and start a new life, could she have done this and left without taking any of her money, as well as having no contact with her mother or children for two years? One day, Lynn found an article from what we call the other side of the bridge, meaning on the western side of Maryland. It was in a town called Westminster, and the remains of a young woman had been found there. The remains were skeletonized, so there could not be a visual confirmation as to whether or not this could be Christine. But they were still in the same state, and though still 160 miles away, Lynn thought that this could mean the remains were Christine, that either she had been killed on the eastern shore and driven over the bridge, or she was alive when entering Western Maryland, but was killed somewhere over there. Um, if she was actually killed on Delmarva, that would have meant that whoever did it would have had to be a very cold person and hard person to drive with human remains for at least three hours, not knowing if they would be stopped by police or if something would happen to the car and they'd have to pull over. You know, Western Maryland, in some areas, can be very populated and, you know, more than the eastern shore of Maryland may be. But there are still some areas that are pretty open. After wondering about every different scenario that could have befallen her daughter, um, police did contact Lynn, but they advised her that they were able to determine that the remains were not those of her daughter 
but another that had gone missing 10 years prior to Christine. So that does show as well, though, that remains can be hidden for, you know, a number of years without anybody finding them. When Lynn had lost hope that Christine would ever be found, um, and fact that the remains that were found in Westminster were not hers probably didn't help things. Um, according to Lynn, the relationship with the police got worse. Um, she stated that one police officer even told her that Christine was a sponge because she had not worked yet, but still had two children. Lynn could also face this backlash from other members of the community with people writing or commenting about the case in very negative terms towards Christine. Lynn and the police were both facing similar hurdles, though, and that was that they were not able to find any more leads. Lynn had reached out to anybody that she could think of that knew Christine, yet there was still no information coming forth. And sometimes non-police personnel um, have better luck with that because people who are talking to the police, they get nervous or they don't want to reveal too much because even if they know something, they might be involved in other illegal activities and they don't want to take the chance of those activities coming to light. But still, Lynn wasn't getting anywhere either um, with leads on Christine. What, make th what made things harder was that Tia, Christine's purported best friend, had stopped speaking with Lynn. Now, on a personal note, my sister died 10 years ago, one of my sisters, and one of her best friends still calls and speaks with my father. So that friendship and that bond did not go away, even though one of the two passed away. So I would think that a best friend whose friend disappeared from their home would want to keep that bond going. And if they were truly concerned about their best friend being missing, instead of not returning calls and ignoring that friend's mother, why wouldn't Tia speak with Lynn? And even if she didn't know anymore, at least try to brainstorm or try to develop new ideas of what may have happened that could also help bring back memories that might have been lost and could have helped then find Christine, but none of that happened. So this was kind of a big red flag. Lynn continued to ask questions though, and she kept her daughter's name out there. She found out that some of Tia's own relatives were suspicious of her. Now Lynn was not afraid to say or do things in a public arena meaning she would mention these things on interviews, such as Tia was not speaking with her, or she would write about it publicly online. And more than two years after Christine went missing, Clarence Jackson took a third strike. And this is in terms of charges and convictions that um, he had against him. He had already committed two felonies in his past that he had been convicting convicted for, and now living in Tennessee, he had set his neighbor's apartment on fire. This was his third strike, meaning he was out. He could spend the rest of his life in jail after this. This also kind of shows his mentality and knowing that this was his third strike, for whatever reason, he still decided to set his neighbor's apartment on fire. So here's just some information um, about the time that Clarence, a.k.a. Junior, had spent in jail. And Junior actually reached out to Lynn and began, you know, giving her information. And in some ways, I find it heartbreaking that Lynn felt a relief that Junior was telling her the information that she needed. But the thing that he was telling her was that he was actually involved in what happened to Christine. In some of the communications, he you know, mentioned other areas of Maryland, but all in 
you know, the Eastern Shore. There were areas such as Snow Hill and Pocomoke, which are pretty close together, um, and within Worcester County. If you see the writing of that, it looks like Worcester County, but it's Worcester. Um, so it's all in approximately the same area. But as communication with the Clarence continued, what Lynn needed to know was finally brought to her attention. It was confirmed that Christine had been killed. And Clarence did communicate with the police and let them know where Christine could be found. Police went to the grounds of the River House Inn. This was in Maryland, and it was in a historic area. The day itself was frigid. It was February 19, 2010, and was not the ideal day to be going about the type of search that they would need to go through. While the ground would not be completely frozen, it would, let's just say, be a little difficult to dig. Still nowhere near, let's just say, Minnesota frozen, but it would create a hindrance to the macabre discovery that they were about to make. The area of Delmarva that the police were, um, were searching and trying to find Christine's body, it kind of offers this juxtaposition of what some may consider to be a quaint or historic town. Well, this town was now nestled against the remains of a homicide victim, a victim of violence that was starkly opposite of what the River House Inn wanted to portray. The inn can be the site of weddings or large parties, yet for years there had been a victim of a homicide buried right on the ground. There was also such a different of emotions there was anger, relief, exhilaration, all of these feelings about the same case, relief that answers were finally going to be told, anger that a young mother was killed, and exhilaration in that they were finally going to get answers. Like everything that they had been working for was now coming to fruition. But there's also this feeling that the answer is not something that you would have hoped. While you would have hoped to get a message from a police department in another state to say that your missing persons victim is alive and well, you know that while you stand over the ground looking down where one of the suspects has directed you, that any bit of hope that you held will never, ever be felt again. The River House Inn is a popular bed and breakfast and Christine had been buried in the backyard of the River House Inn. So this episode was actually featured on Buried in the Backyard, an Oxygen Channel um, production, and I actually um, was on there on a different case a few years later um, about a case that took place in Delaware, so I actually, I think I, I've said this before, but I, I've never actually watched it because I don't want to see myself on TV. But um, there are a couple of cases on that particular show that have taken place on Delmarva. Um, the one I was in is called A Family Affair. It's one of the more recent ones. But actually thinking of it, it's been about a year since it's been on, um, you know, when it was first broadcast. And I do have a number of brothers and sisters and a sister in Ohio didn't know that I'd been on there. And another sister said she got a text message one morning asking, why was I on TV? Was I part of the case? What happened? Was I okay? That type of thing. Um, so when I first started to look into doing podcasting, Christine's case was one of the cases I knew I would cover at some point. Um, you know, I hadn't done the show yet, but I had seen the case on Buried in the Backyard. So that's just kind of a connection there between the podcast and um, where this particular crime was also 
shown on a more nationwide level. So what made Clarence decide to go ahead and give information to Christine's mother and to law enforcement? After Christine went missing, Clarence and Tia decided to move out of state to Tennessee. He didn't really keep his nose clean that long, and soon he was arrested for arson, like we just went over. Now, Clarence did have a daughter, though, and he reached out to Christine's mother because he was thinking about his own daughter, which I find kind of ironic, but... He didn't reach out because he felt guilt, you know, thinking about what would have happened to his daughter and if he didn't have answers. No, the reason he reached out was because he wanted to be in a prison system that was in Maryland so that he could serve his sentence closer to where his daughter lived. So this is why he reached out to Lynn. This is why he provided information on the whereabouts of Christine's body. It was an exchange for a move to a Maryland prison. So instead of serving his time in Tennessee for the arson, he wanted to be in Maryland to be close to his daughter. So this was not an altruistic um, action by any means. He somehow can seem to understand the love of a parent towards his child, but he continued to withhold information from Lynn for years. And I wonder if, say, he didn't have a daughter or if his daughter lived near Tennessee, if he would have ever given up information on Christine's whereabouts. But when Clarence did talk, he didn't seem to hold anything back. He accepted responsibility for his actions and the crime. He admitted that, and I say admitted in that a lot of this information will be contested by other parties um, in the crime. He admitted that he was not the one who swung a two-by-four that killed Christine. However, he said he was the one who came up with the idea about how to handle the murder, so the cover-up and subsequent actions. Clarence provided the police the information that led to Christine's body and as well as information on all three Clarence, Tia, and Justin that were to be charged with varying aspects of Christine's murder. Now, Justin had originally been from Texas, and after Christine's murder and Clarence and Tia moving to Tennessee, he did go back to Texas, and that's where he was arrested for Christine's murder. He was 17 at the time of the murder, and his youth shows before... Um, you know, his youth shows that he may have been more impetuous, even though really when I say that, I'm now thinking about Clarence setting fire to an apartment. So even though Clarence and Tia may have been older chronologically or in years, it doesn't really seem as though any of them really had true maturity. But being 17 and being young, he did look towards Tia kind of like as an older sister or maybe even a mother figure. He did say that he tried to tell his cousin about the murder at least two times after it had been committed, but he wasn't able to. Um, it doesn't explain any more about the murder, such as was there a time when they were interrupted, or why he couldn't just try to be friends with Christine, because this is where the motive apparently for Justin comes in. Supposedly, he had a crush on Christine. And, you know, there's going to be a lot of this person said and that person said. So according to Clarence, Justin saw that his crush was not being um, returned. And Clarence and Christine were also having a little affair of their own. So Justin got very mad one day, and killed Christine. Again, this is kind of what Clarence says. Justin will make it sound like, you know, he didn't have as much to do with the murder itself. 
So we've heard a little bit from the two men. So it was time to talk to Tia. And they had to invoke immunity. Probably all heard that phrase before. And that really lessened Tia's responsibility in the whole case. Now, from either one of their testimonies, and especially going to Justin's, where he was reported to have said that he tried to tell Tia a couple of times, it is pretty much stating that Tia was not involved at all in the murder itself. When she said that she was gone from the house that day and returned to find Christine alone or gone and the children there, that was the truth. That Tia did not have any, you know, actual physical involvement in the murder itself. However, after the murder, she did continue with some of the covering up of the murder um, to a pretty great degree, in my opinion. Um, it wasn't immediately after the murder as well, so it's not like she was caught up in the murder and was feeling scared about what they might do, you know, having all of these feelings and emotions come over you at the time. This happened after the murder and she would have had time to think about what was happening and still took these actions. So this is one of the versions as to what happened then. Tia made her way back home that day that Christine went missing, and she had seen that a bonfire had been lit, but nobody was at the fire to attend to it. Um, a little while later, she saw Clarence and Justin exiting the woods. And she had also found Christine's two children were at the home. Now, Tia called to have someone pick up Christine's children. And again, it, this is where I'm unsure as to whether she called. This is the reason she called Lynn or if she called one of their mutual friends to come pick them up. It doesn't really say in the um, accounts that I read. So then they did stay at the River House Inn for the night. This is central because at least one of the defendants worked at the River House Inn. Um, there were some discrepancies um, with this line of evidence as to what exactly occurred next. In some articles and testimony, it was stated that Christine had been hit by a two-by-four, but in Tia's retelling of the events that she says were told to her, and what evidence was found showed that Christine had actually been hit by a shovel. More information arose that Christine also had a physical relationship, possibly with 17-year-old Justin. However, this is sometimes disputed in that it was feelings that Justin had for Christine, which were not reciprocated. So, you know, I do want to you know, just repeat these um, these stories that are being told are really, to a degree, just that, stories. There might be some corroborating evidence to support some aspects of what's being said, but by no means is there supporting information that um, is evidence to everything that each person says. But let's take a look at size differential. If we look at Christine, she was about five foot three and weighed approximately 104 pounds. So even though Justin was still a teenager and, you know, wasn't say 19, just about to turn 20, he probably still outweighed Christine. So wielding any type of weapon, he could have inflicted deadly blows. Questions could have also arisen then as to whether or not the murder was premeditated. Premeditation doesn't have to take months or weeks, days, hours, or even minutes. It can just take a few seconds. It can be argued that possibly his first hit was done in a fit of passion or rage, but she was hit again. So with each hit that he may have given to her, he had time to think about what he was doing. He knew that by that point, hitting her again could kill her and he could stop what he was doing and try to get help. 
So the fact that there was more than one hit would show that there was premeditation, not in the way that some people think, but yes, he did have time to think about what he was going to do with each subsequent hit, and he never provided help once he realized that she could quite possibly die. Morally, doing the right thing would have been getting help. But his line of defense, Justin's, was that it was an accident. Four hits to the head, he said, was an accident. And that's what he told Tia. Something else that the defense argued was that Justin was still, in fact, only 17, while Tia and Clarence were the adults in the situation. Clarence actually had keys to the shed at the River House Inn as he had worked there. You know, and he's the one who made the decision to take Christine's body there. Justin's defense argued that the teenager would not be able to order adults around. And he also said that Tia's testimony was a lie, as Tia was more interested in protecting her boyfriend, Clarence, than her cousin, Justin. So apparently Tia was um, giving evidence against Justin, implicating him as the person who actually hit Christine. And something that you might think you only see in the movies is when Shetty's remains were found, there was actually a piece of wood there that had the name Junior carved into it. If we go back earlier, we can remember that Clarence's nickname was Junior. There was also a crown carved on top of the name. The defense argued that, quote, King Jr., meaning Clarence, killed Christine Shetty and they got Tia and Justin to come in here and tell us. Justin Haydell did it because it's all they have. So Justin's um, defense was saying, hey, there's evidence here to support that Clarence King was the one who actually did the crime, but they're trying to pin it on a teenager. Now, in rebuttal, the prosecution said that all the witnesses were independent witnesses and that Justin had confessed to them, meaning to Tia and the cellmate um, who was going to also testify, and that they had no reason or ability to know what Tia's testimony would have been. So in other words, the prosecution, when they first talked to Tia, they had no idea of knowing exactly what her testimony would be. The prosecution did concede that it was Clarence and Tia that may have made decisions on where to move the body, so after the fact of the murder, but that was assistance after the fact, that the testimony for the particular case against Justin was whether or not he had actually committed the act of murder, which the prosecution was stating that he had. Now, looking at the evidence myself, um, the piece of wood that had the name Clarence carved into it with a crown, which indicated Clarence King, I'm sorry, not Clarence Jr., um, but Jr. King is what it would mean, doesn't really play that big a role to me as far as who the killer might have been. Either, you know, Justin could have grabbed a piece of wood um, to try to hit or run after Christine with, um, and it just happened to be that piece of wood. Or he could have grabbed it later when he knew they were moving the body and leave it there so if she was ever found, it would lead back to Clarence. So that piece of wood doesn't you know, say it was Justin any more than it said it was Clarence or vice versa. So, you know, they both had access to that. It's not like they didn't live in different houses or that they, you know, had access to different things. But the jury deliberated for only three hours and they found Justin guilty. An anonymous juror said that they found him guilty because he was the one they in, that inflicted the blows. So the jury did wholeheartedly believe that Justin was the one who committed the crime, not that they were looking at it as he was just Part of the crime. There was no confusion there about that. 
The jurors specifically knew and believed that Justin was the one who killed Christine. And though he did say at the beginning of the initial vote that they took when they first went back into the jury room, um, that where they stood indicated that they did need some discussion on whether or not the murder was premeditated, that they all believed that Justin was, quote, guilty of something, end quote. After review of the evidence, they were quickly able to come to a resolution and the verdict of guilty. Now, going back to a few points mentioned that may have or may not have played a role in the murder, um, Junior did say that he and Christine were in a physical relationship. Whenever Tia would go out to run errands um, and Christine's kids were taking naps, they would go out into the woods to have a romantic encounter. This does um, kind of support what Justin's feelings might have been about the whole thing. Basically, they were living in kind of a love rectangle, if that's what you want to call it. Tia was dating Clarence. Clarence was sleeping with Christine. And Justin, Tia's cousin, had a crush on Christine. Supposedly, Justin followed them into the woods and became jealous, according to Clarence. Justin then grabbed a shovel and came back to where they were. Um, and he hit Christine with the shovel. Junior said this was because Justin was enraged by jealousy, and Junior, though years younger than Christine, thought that there was a chance of a relationship between him and the victim. You know, I, I will say this does make some sense. Um, I've heard other accounts that made it sound more like Clarence and Justin were sitting at a table or somewhere inside the house when the crime started. So it's really hard to say 100% um, what to believe. But this other version of a story or of how it might have gone down or whatever story you might believe, no matter how you look at it, Justin has been consistent um, in terms of who 